we're going to go into part four of, of the series here on Revelation. Uh, not the whole book of Revelation, we're just doing the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, uh, which is the letters to the seven churches. And uh, we're going to do part four here today, and we're going to finally start into chapter two. Uh, chapter one is, is an introduction, right? And it's an introduction. It's all about Jesus. It's all, there's a whole bunch of things we've been looking at the first three weeks of this series. And now in chapter 2, we actually begin to get into the actual letters themselves where Jesus is addressing the seven churches. And so today, we're actually going to look, uh, you know, in chapter 2, there's a little bit of intro stuff we have to, I have to give you uh, in this uh, message today to help you better understand uh, what's going to happen in the, in, the, uh, in the rest of the letters, in the seven letters. But let's pray, and then we'll get into this Revelation 2, verse 1. And today is going to be about the church and Jesus' heart for the church. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I just thank you for who you are. We talked about you last week, and we are still in awe today of who you are. You are awesome in majesty and, and even terrifying in glory, and yet you are tender in loving mercy towards us. And so we love you, Jesus. And we enjoyed spending time with you this past week. And we're here again today to celebrate you. And today I want to talk about your heart and specifically your heart for the church. And I just pray that you would open up our hearts to care about your bride and to care about the things that you care about. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, we'll start here. Revelation 2 verse 1. Jesus speaking here to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And, and, and like I said, there's a, there's a few things in this verse we just have to unpack or else the rest of the, you know, the series, even the letters, uh, won't make a lot of sense. And, and uh, so we're going to look at the lampstands and the stars today a little bit and, and see what that's all about. Um, but also, I just wanted to stop here at the beginning. We just have to take a few minutes and, and just talk about why these seven churches, why Ephesus? Okay, like, how come this, you know, why Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and, and Thyatira and Sardis, like, are these just, you know, did Jesus have a kind of hat in heaven and in the Holy Spirit put the, put the names of all the churches and he just pulled them out, is it random? Or why these seven, okay? And why are they in the order they're in? And uh, sometimes just knowing a little bit of the context behind the who and the what and the when and the where helps the actual passages themselves uh, come alive. And, uh, and so if, uh, if I just go back, because I, I want to talk about who are these seven churches for just a few minutes so you get the background of, of what's going on in these letters. And if we go to Revelation 1, 10 to 11, uh, we see the list of, which, of what the seven churches are, which seven. And uh, John says this, we saw these verses last week. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, now Jesus is speaking, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea, okay? And so the, the thing you need to know here is, first of all, uh, these, this is not just seven random churches, okay? These are seven churches from one particular area that, that the Apostle John oversaw in his ministry. Okay, so there's seven churches. I'm going to put up a, a map up there. There's seven churches uh, from the Roman province of Asia. And if, if you just look up there, I'm going to show you another map in just a moment, but just not yet. Um, the area where those seven churches wa were is, I mean, you see there the Mediterranean Sea. You see Europe along the top. You see northern Africa along the bottom. And then that's modern-day Turkey. And that coastal region there that I've circled in, in red, the seven churches that these letters are written to are right in that area in the red circle. And Patmos, the island where John 
John is in exile writing these letters is one of the little islands off to the side. Guys, if you can go to the next slide, I'll, I'll show you a map of the seven churches. Here they are. Um, these are the, uh, the uh, seven churches. You see Patmos there where John is when he's writing the book of Revelation. And now if you follow the, 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 uh, the churches around the red dots there, and by the way, if you're into GPS, these dots won't be exactly right. I was looking at a map and, and putting them on myself, but, uh, but it's close enough. But if you, follow the, if you follow the red dots around, if you follow the cities around the, the horseshoe there, they, if you follow them around from the bottom, starting with Ephesus there, and you go around, you actually uh, encounter the cities in the exact order they appear in these letters, okay? So the order of the letters is also not random. The, the cities are not random. These are seven, this is a group of churches from a specific area in the Roman Empire. They're not just random churches Jesus pulled out from the whole world. There's, I mean, this does not cover all the churches that existed, okay? There was there was, you know, many, 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 many other churches already around the world at this point, or around at least the Roman Empire, not around the world as we know it today, but there's many other churches. Jesus is just giving John a message for these seven in this particular province that John was connected to, okay? And then the order of the letters is also not random, um, and, and, it, and it follows exactly in that order that you see around the horseshoe. And the reason for that has to do with geography and history. Um, um, there, the Roman highway, the main Roman road that went through the province of Asia, started in Ephesus. And of course, the reason for that is obvious. Ephesus was the capital city of the province of Asia. It was one of the biggest cities in the province of Asia. In fact, it was a huge city uh, for its time uh, period. There was, some people think there was up to a quarter million people living in Ephesus uh, 2,000 years ago, which was a massive number for that time period. And it was a port city, and it was the capital of Asia. And so John, uh, uh, writing from Patmos, the, the ship, you know, the mail ship, would have taken the letter to Ephesus. And so that's why Ephesus is first. And then, and then if you just follow the order, the main Roman road through the province uh, of Asia started in Ephesus, and then it followed that horseshoe. It went up through Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, and down through Laodicea. And so the order of the letters simply has to do with uh, the messenger, whoever it was that was taking these letters for John to the churches, the letters are in the order that this person would have encountered the churches as he traveled. So he would have left Patmos, he would have taken the letters with him, he would have arrived in Ephesus, read them the letter, he would have gone up the road to Smyrna, read their, their letter, and then he would have keep going all around. That's why that's there. Now you say, why, you know, why bother with little details like that? Well, again, first of all, I think having a little bit of context and a little bit of the where and the who and the what helps us make sense of things, first of all. Just helps the, the context. And we'll see as we go through these letters in the next number of weeks, uh, we're going to actually see how the context helps these letters really come alive. Uh, second reason, though, is, and I, and I don't want to spend much time here because I don't have much time, but the second reason I wanted to just mention this is because uh, kind of, there's been a popular teaching which I think confuses things in this passage quite a bit. And a popular teaching that, and not popular in that everybody, you know, teaches it, but many people have taught this, and many books have been written about it, and so it kind of gets into the popular consciousness, but some people have taught that these seven churches, they look at these seven churches in the book of Revelation, and they say, these seven churches represent seven time periods in church history, and no doubt some of you have heard of that theory before, and so they look at Revelation, and, and if you're not looking at a map, it's easy to come up with theories like that, and it sounds kind of sounds neat, so each of these 
uh, you know, letters is a time period in church history. So the letter to the church of, of Ephesus was a letter that was to the church in the early church in that time period. And then the second letter, the one to Smyrna, was for the next couple hundred years of church history. And then the one to Pergamum is for the next couple hundred years of church history. And so on and so forth until you get to Laodicea, which is supposedly the church that's, that's the modern day church, Okay. And so people teach that each of these letters represents, but that is not true. These letters were simply written to local churches that John knew about, and they were there on the road, and that's why the order is there, okay? And that whole theory about the time periods and stuff, that each of these letters represents a time period in church history, it only works if you are in Canada or in the U.S. Because the church in Laodicea is an apathetic, worldly, materialistic church. And so people look at that and they go, oh, see, the theory works. Because the church today struggles with apathy and materialism. Well, only if you live in, you know, North America or Europe. But the fact of the matter is that the vast majority of Christians who live today on the earth do not live in North America or Europe. They live in places like China and, and the rest of Asia and Africa and the Middle East. I mean, right now in the Middle East, tens of thousands of people are getting saved every year, many of them being persecuted. I read a book recently about a, a church in Baghdad, Iraq, and they are ministering to people, and people are getting saved. And a couple, and so this book is a couple years old already. But when it was written, the last year before it was written, they had seen something like uh, in uh, in a couple month period, they had seen 96 people baptized for Jesus, and of those, a quarter of them had been murdered for their faith almost immediately. So that's what you know. That's where you know. And then you look at South America, Africa. That's where you know the majority of people who call themselves Christians today are not living here, and they don't match up to the Church of Laodicea. There is no one church that can represent a whole time period of churches. Okay, so these letters are not written to time periods; they are written to actual specific local churches. Okay? And so when we read them today, we don't look at Laodicea and say, that's the one that's to us. We look at all of them because no one of these churches is exactly the same as us. There's, you know, you know no, because no two churches would ever be exactly the same because people aren't exactly the same. So when we look here, none of these letters is exactly to us, and Laodicea isn't exactly to us just because we live in the modern day time period. What we do now is we read these letters from Jesus, and we will be some unique combination of the various strengths and weaknesses to varying levels of what's happening in these seven churches. And so what we do now is we approach these letters is we prayerfully study them to learn what is Jesus saying to us today. And we're going to find things in each church that speak to us today. All right? So that was just a little bit of important um, uh, background information. There are seven local churches, and they're on the road in that order that they appear in Revelation uh, chapter 1 to 3. All right, now let's go back to Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, because there's a couple more things we need to unpack in that verse that, uh, you know, for the rest of the series, because, you know, the whole thing is about these lampstands and stuff, and so we have to uh, unpack this just a little bit. Revelation 2, verse 1, we go back there to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And so two things we have to answer here. First of all, why is John writing to an angel? Okay? And, and, and second of all, because I don't know how many of you have ever written a letter to an angel, or you've written a postcard and you mailed it to an angel somewhere, okay? But John is writing to an angel. Why is he writing to an angel? How is he writing to an angel? Who's going to take it to the angel, all right? And secondly, we just have to look at lampstands and stars, okay? What's, what's going on here, all right? So 
uh, we start with the stars and the lampstands. And, and one of the reasons, again, that I want to do this as well, so many people, and no doubt some of you are in this boat as well here this morning, so many Christians are intimidated by the book of Revelation. And so many Christians don't read the book of Revelation. And one of the most common reasons I hear from people why they don't want to read the book of Revelation is because they say it's so full of symbols and they can't understand it. And I hear this all the time, that Christians are intimidated by the book of Revelation because it's so full of symbols. So one of the things, I, I, and one of the things you're going to see now in just a moment is, and, and what, that I want to get across in this series is, the book of Revelation actually doesn't have that many symbols, Okay? Um, the book of Revelation has some crazy stuff happening in it, and that happens to be because in the, in the time just before Jesus comes back, some crazy stuff is going to happen on the earth, okay? But crazy stuff isn't a symbol, okay? It's just, here's what's going to happen, and it's, wow, that's major upheaval, okay? But that's not the same as a symbol. People think the book of Revelation is just layered in symbols you can't understand. There's actually very few symbols in Revelation, and I'll tell you something else. Everywhere there is a symbol in Revelation, it always tells you what it means. Jesus did not give us the book of Revelation to confuse us. He gave us the book of Revelation so we would fall in love with him and prepare ourselves to endure. Okay? And so we're going to see this right here. Start, so people say, well, look at, see, there's another example. Revelation is full of symbols, yada, yada, yada. Yes, every time there's a symbol in the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation explains what the symbol means. Let's look. Just a couple verses before that, we see uh, what it means there. Revelation 1, verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And you'll find this throughout Revelation. It, y- there are a few symbols in some places in Revelation, but always it's explained. So it's very easy. You read about the stars, you read about the lampstands, and a book tells you what they are. The, the seven stars are the angels, and the seven lampstands are the actual seven local churches there that actually existed at a, at a point in, in time, which is uh, really big, okay? Now, so this, of course, raises up the, fir- the first question that we asked, which is, so why is John writing to an angel? Okay, so the stars in his right hand are the angels of the seven churches. What is this all about? He's writing to an angel. Jesus is holding angels in his hand of these churches. Um, what, what's this all about? Okay, well, lots of people have taught this over the years. Lots of pastors have taught it over the years. Um, they've taught that out of this passage, they've taught that every church has an angel. Okay, and they've taught out of this verse, out of this passage, that every church has a specific angel assigned to it and that is sort of watching over it and in charge of it and all that sort of stuff. And it certainly seems to be the case here because John is writing each church has an angel and Jesus is holding the angels in his hand and that's been a teaching. But I'm going to show you that actually that's not true. Okay, now having said that, I just want to say this. I certainly do believe that Every church has many angels around it watching it. I've had many experiences here. People, some of you are here right now in this service. I've had many experiences with people over the years here at Southland who have told me after services that uh, you know, during the worship or during a message or something, they saw angels. They saw angels up here on stage. They saw angels uh, in the audience. I have no doubt that right now, because, because angels, that, I mean, that, that's, Jesus uh, sends his angels, and, and, you know, the church is the center of what Jesus is doing. On earth. I have no doubt that right now, there are not many angels around, even right, and I hope you guys are, are having a good time, but that they're around right now watching, okay? Um, I mean, you think of the story, right? Elisha, you know the famous story in the Old Testament? 
Uh, Elisha and his servant, uh, his servant wakes up in the morning. The Syrian army has surrounded the house because they want to kill Elisha. And the servant wakes up and freaks out because the house is surrounded by this huge army. And and Elisha wakes up. He kind of yawns. Why are you getting me up so early? And and stop freaking out. He prays, Lord, would you open up, you know, my servant's eyes. And then his servant sees the real picture, which is that the Syrian army is surrounded by this huge angelic army, okay? So I have no doubt, and I have no doubt that right now this church isn't just, there's angels watching and doing things, and God is, they're doing tasks here among us, and every time we meet and gather and pray as a church, I don't doubt that we, that, you know, that there's just this covering of, of angels. I don't doubt that. But what I'm saying is, that actually isn't what this passage is talking about, okay? This passage is not talking about, the, you know, John isn't writing to an angel because, first of all, nowhere in Scripture are we told to make contact with angels. In fact, the exact opposite. You know, no, in fact, you know, Scripture actually warns about having too much of a fascination with angels. Our focus is supposed to be on Jesus, and then, of course, sometimes he uses angels to bring messages to us or whatever, but nowhere in Scripture are we taught to make contact with angels, to write to angels, to try to communicate with angels. Our communication is supposed to be with Jesus, and he commands the angels to do various things. And in fact, you look at the rest of the New Testament, the rest of the New Testament is also made up of other letters to the churches, right? Like, here we have seven letters to the churches here in Revelation, but I mean, all of Paul's books are letters to churches as well, and, 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 and Peter's letters to the churches, and Jude. The, the New Testament is mostly made up of letters to churches, and none of those letters is written to an angel of one of those churches. Okay? So the question is, Again, uh, you know, why is John writing these letters to angels? Of course, first of all, we know that the letters aren't for angels. I mean, we know that, you know, it's not that angels are supposed to read these letters and obey them, okay? And now someone might say, okay, that what some people have said is, okay, the reason John is writing these things to angels is because angels are going to deliver the letters, okay? Now that, I think, is highly, highly unlikely, okay? But even in the case that that is what God wanted to do, let's just imagine that God did want to send, you know, seven angels to John's door on Patmos. Knock, hand on the letters, can you guys deliver this? And the angels go and physically deliver the letters to the churches and read them. Uh, it's very unlikely, but let's say even that, that that was the case, it still doesn't explain why John would say to the angel of the church in Ephesus because you don't write letters to the postman. Isn't that true? I mean, if you write a letter to your grandma in British Columbia or wherever she lives, your great aunt, you don't write to the postman and then write a letter to your grandma and then the postman comes and takes it to your grandma. You just write to grandma or whatever you call her. You know, grandma's a good thing to call your grandma, but you just write it to her and then the postman just takes it to her. Okay, the messenger, you don't write the letter to the messenger, you write the letter to the person, okay? So it still doesn't make sense. People have said, well, he, maybe it was angels that delivered the letters. It still doesn't explain why he says to the angel. So you say, well, why did he write these letters to angels? And the answer is, he didn't. He did not write these letters to angels. You say, well, what are you talking about, he didn't? It says right there, to the angel of a church in Ephesus. Well, you're right, that is what it says in English. In English, we have the word angel there, okay? And the reason we have the word angel there is because the Greek word is angelos, which, of course, is where we get our word angel from, okay? But the thing you have to understand is, in English, angel just means angel. None of us is an angel. In English, the word angel means angel. It means angelic being from heaven, right? And, and that's all it means. But in Greek, the word angelos did not just mean angel the way we think of angel. It literally meant messenger. That's what it meant, messenger. 
And it could mean a human messenger, or it could mean an angelic messenger from heaven, but it didn't just mean angel the way we think of angel, okay? And I want to show you this. John the Baptist, uh, in Matthew 11, verse 10, Jesus actually calls John the Baptist an angel, an angelos. Look at this. Jesus is speaking. This is he, John the Baptist, of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger, which is the word angelos, the exact same word. It's the exact same word as in Revelation 1 and 2. There's no difference. In Greek, it's angelos, angelos. Behold, I send you my messenger, angelos, before your face, who will prepare the way um, before you. Okay? So now, over time, what happened is this. Because one of the primary roles in Scripture of angels what we call angels in, in English, is to bring messages from God, over time, this whole idea, they just began to be called the messenger, angelos. And angelos, angel, just simply became attached to angels as we know them today. But originally in the Bible, the way it was written, you could have a human being be a messenger, you could have an angel be a messenger. They were both the same. They were both angelos. Now, when it comes to translating the scriptures, so now that you, you know, as a translator is going through the Greek, he just sees the exact same word. It could be a human or it could be an angel. How does he decide which one it's going to be? Well, context usually is pretty clear. Okay? If, if, if he's flying around, it's not human, it's, it's angel. Okay? And if he's not, then it's John the Baptist or someone else. It's a messenger. Okay? So usually context, 90% of the time, context is very clear whether this is a human being or whether it's what we call an angel, a heavenly messenger, a heavenly being. Okay? Now, in Revelation, again, due to the fact over time, you know, people just came to see this book as a book full of symbols. You can't really understand it. It's all about angels. It sort of just became tradition to take the word messenger, angelos, in Greek in Revelation and just translate it as angel in English. But in fact, actually, it could just be, and it should just be, and more theologians are, are agreeing with this at, when you look at it, is that it shouldn't be angel here. It could just be messenger. Now again, I just talked about the whole postman thing. You don't write a letter to the postman. You don't, John doesn't write to the messenger who's going to bring the letter. He's writing it to the church. And so that's why more and more theologians today uh, uh, totally, totally agree and totally believe that this angel here could actually just be translated uh, the leader or the pastor or depending what denomination you're from, the bishop or overseer of the church. That's all that's going on here, okay? It's just, it's the human leader, okay? And, and you just put it up there, and when you read it, then it just makes so much more sense to the leader or pastor or bishop, whatever you want to call him, to the leader of the church in Ephesus, right? And now John is writing a letter to the leader who's going to pass it on to the church, okay? That's all that's going on. Now, again, you say, you know, why would you, you know, why spend so much time on this? And, and one of the big reasons is, uh, first of all, because there, again, so many people are confused by Revelation. They're confused by the Bible. They think there's all this stuff there that doesn't make sense. It's all weird. So whenever I see details like this, I just want to bring them to people's attention because it kind of takes some of the intimidation factor of reading your Bibles and of reading Revelation. It just, it's, he's not writing to an angel. He's just writing to the pastor. To the pastor of the church in Ephesus, right? And we begin this, this letter. And it helps people to read their Bibles when some of these details uh, come into focus. But there's another reason. And by the way, I would, I would encourage some of you um, during your, you know, during the week, this week, or whatever, take out a pen, and, uh, and I mark up my Bible. I like to write notes in my Bible and stuff, um, but you can, for future reference, you can go and you can circle the word angel there in Revelation 1 and Revelation 2, wherever it pops up, and you can write beside it. Just circle it, and you can write beside it, messenger slash leader, whatever you want to write, just as a reminder to yourself for the future as you read it, so it makes more sense. But there's a second reason why I bring this up, and the second reason why I bring this up has to do with Jesus' heart. 
that we see here in this chapter. And, uh, and Jesus' heart, and we have this amazing picture now in, in Revelation chapter 1 and chapter 2. We have this amazing picture of Jesus' heart for the church. He appears to John, and he's in the midst of the lampstands, which are these seven local churches. He's in the middle of the local churches, and in his right hand, he's holding the pastors of these churches. I mean, you just see the, Jesus' heart and his involvement in and his presence in the church, Okay? And, and this brings me now to where we're going to go for the rest of this uh, message now today. And, and I want to show you, last week in Revelation chapter 1, we, uh, we looked at length at the description of Jesus, which is just so awesome. And, and the description of Jesus, I mean, he is so stunning and majestic, and we just worshiped him. And last week, we just focused on that description, and there's so much more we could look at there, but he's amazing. But you know, last week, as we went through Revelation 1, I intentionally left something out. I just totally ignored it. As we were reading the description of Jesus, uh, there was a whole side of something that was happening in that description, which I completely left out because we just didn't have time to open it up. And I want to just go back there now for a little bit now in the rest of this message, and I want to show you a side of things we didn't look at last week. Last week, we just looked at how awesome Jesus is and his, the description of him. And what I want to show you today is he also showed us something else in Revelation 1. In Revelation 1, he did not just show us his glory and how amazing he is. He also reveals to us his heart and what he's thinking about and what he cares about and what he's passionate about, all right? And I want to go there, and I want to show you that context because he didn't just show up to John and say, John, here I am in all my splendor, worship me. He showed up to John in all of his glory, which is amazing, but incredibly, he brings props with him. He brings, brings props. I mean, he could have just shown up. I mean, Jesus is enough, isn't he? He could have just shown up all by himself and said, worship me, John, but he doesn't. He shows up with lampstands and stars. Why share your glory, Jesus? Why share the attention with anyone else? Well, we're going to see why, and that has to do with his, his heart. And so we go back to verses 10 11. I, was in the, I, John, was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, and of course, now what is Jesus going to talk to John about that is so important? Well, let's keep reading. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. So Jesus shows up in this stunning vision to John. And we looked at that last week. He's just so powerful, this powerful vision of how amazing Jesus is and how much we need to worship him and how incredible he is. But the thing I want you to notice now is that I completely ignored last week is when Jesus shows up to him, he doesn't just show up and say, ta-da, look at me. He shows up and he has something he wants to talk about. And he doesn't talk to John about John. I mean, just think about it now. Let's put ourselves in John's shoes here for just a bit. You're sitting at your kitchen table on a Sunday morning right? Like we talked about the Lord's Day last week. You're sitting at your kitchen table on a Sunday morning, and you're in the Spirit, as we talked about last week. You're, you're spending time with God. You're quieting your heart. You're meditating on His Word, and suddenly Jesus shows up in all His splendor right behind you, and He wants to talk to you, and you turn around, and, and now He's going to talk to you, but what is He going to talk to you about? And I want you to notice here, Jesus does not talk to John about John. 
He doesn't appear to John in all his splendor and glory and say, John, I want to talk to you about your marriage. And John wasn't married anyway, I don't think. At least not at that point. He's almost 100 years old. But, uh, but he's whatever. But he doesn't show up and talk to John about his marriage. He doesn't show up in all his glory and say, I want to talk to you about your finances. I want to talk to you about your character. And all of those are wonderful things that Jesus does like to talk to us about. But that's not what he shows up in all of his splendor to do. He shows up in all of his glory and splendor, and we need to pay attention to what is on on Jesus' heart. He doesn't show up to just talk to John about John. He shows up and John sees him and, and he says, and I want to talk to you about the churches. I want to talk to you about the churches. Okay? And so John has this incredible experience with Jesus, but the experience isn't about John. It's all about what's on Jesus' heart. And what is on Jesus' heart, that is the churches. Okay? Now, this is really important. I want to just sit here for just a little bit. Because a lot of us, see, and, and the other reason John, Jesus didn't show up is he didn't show up to hear what was on John's heart. He didn't show up and say, John, what do you want to ask me? John, what do you want to pray about? That's not what he shows up. He shows up to tell John what's on his heart. Now, let me tell you something. We, there is, a, a lot of Christians, we never get past uh, the spiritual baby stage. And I'll tell you what the spiritual baby stage is in prayer. The spiritual baby stage in prayer is all I ever pray and think about is myself. Okay? And so, uh, you know, I pray about my finances, I pray about my family, I pray about my marriage, I pray about this, I pray about this, but all my prayers are, are about me. And every time I talk to Jesus, it's about me. And of course, I almost, that's fine to tell, you know, many verses in Scripture, Jesus loves to hear our prayer requests. So it's not bad. I'm not, I'm not trying to discourage people from bringing their prayer requests to Jesus. He loves to hear a prayer request. He loves us. He's our Heavenly Father. And he tells us to ask him when we need something, and we totally can. But a, a, a spiritual baby is someone who only cares about themselves. Okay? And that's just like a, a human baby. I mean, I'm on my fourth baby now, and, and I think we should just stop it there. But anyway, but, um, but, you know, and one of the things I know about babies is they're totally self-centered. I mean, babies, they only care about one person, and that is moi. Okay? So you don't give them their soother fast enough, it's wah. You don't, get there fast, you don't get there to feed them fast enough, wah. Things are too cold or too hot, wah. It's always wah. And now, you know what? If they didn't ever mature out of that, they would be out of my house by, you know, six months, eight months, and you're out. Because <laughs> I cannot handle this level of self-centeredness, okay? But what we hope over time, right, is they don't stay there. When they're a baby, it's all about me. But as they grow, we want to parent them. We want them to grow so that over time they start to realize, okay, there's more to this world than just me. There's other people. And they start to think about boundaries. And then, you, you, and then, and then that I can't just do whatever I want. I can't just take whatever I want. And then you hope to raise them a little, a little higher in maturity where they even begin to feel for other people and think about other people. And you want to raise them to another level of maturity where they can actually think not just about other people in regards to themselves, but they actually want to give to other people. And they want, to, they want other people to do well. And they think about others, okay? That's maturity as we, hopefully, we all mature you know, from the baby stage, which is, it's all about me. Now, here's the thing. A lot of us never apply that to our spiritual lives. And so we just stay our entire lives in spiritual baby immaturity which is our prayers are only ever about ourselves. Now, is it fine to tell God or Jesus what's happening in our lives? Yes, he loves that. Our entire lives, right to the day you die, no matter how mature you get, Jesus wants to hear your prayer request. But if that's all we do, we're just spiritual babies. At some point, 
At some point, we have to go to another level of spiritual maturity, which is, I begin to think, not just about my own life, but now I begin to think about Jesus. What is he thinking about? What is he doing? What does he care about? What does he want to talk about? Not that I don't bring him my requests, but now my prayer life, as I mature spiritually, as I get closer to Jesus, and this is actually when you find your relationship with Jesus begins to take off, is when you begin to go to him and say, now Jesus, I want my heart, okay, forget about my life for a moment, I want to hear what's on your heart. I want to hear about the things you care about, and I want to pray about those things for just a little bit. See, and that's what's happening to John here in this vision. Jesus doesn't show up to John and just say, worship me, John. He doesn't just show up to John and say, what do you want to pray to me today, John? He doesn't, he doesn't show up to get John's heart. He shows up because John has made himself available, and he says, now, John, I'm going to tell you what's on my heart. And that's a whole other level of relationship. You know, in your marriage, in my marriage, I would have not a good relationship with my wife if I only ever shared with her my burdens, but I never listened to hers. And you're only going to go so far with Jesus. You're only going to go so far in intimacy and closeness and power with him and anointing with him and closeness with him if it's all about you. But you want to open up that relationship with Jesus? You want to go to a whole new level with Jesus? You start saying, okay, now, Jesus, it's a two-way street. I want to care about the things you care about. I want to be into the things you, you're into. I want to follow you into where you're going, not just about my life. And that's what's happening to John here. And so now the big thing is, okay, well, what does Jesus want to talk about, and what do we see him wanting to talk to John about? He shows up in all his glory. You know, only two people in Scripture saw Jesus in his glory like this, and maybe only two people in history. I don't know if anybody else has. We don't know. But very few people have ever had an experience with Jesus like what John had until we go to heaven and we see him as he is all the time. So what is it that is so burning in Jesus' heart that he wants to show up like this and just about kill John, as we saw last week, with his overwhelming glory? What is it that's so important to Jesus that's so bubbling up in his heart that he just has to spill it out and he has to share it with someone? And he's looking for John. He says, I want you to partner with me in this burden. And what is it? It's the church. It's the church. What's Jesus' burden for the church? We go to the next two verses. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst, I want you to notice, in the midst. Okay, again, I want you to realize Jesus could have shown up without any props. No one asked him to show up at the lampstands. He could have shown up all by himself and just taken all the attention for himself, but he didn't just want to show John his glory. He also wanted to show John and us who would read this passage not just his glory, but also his heart and his heart is for the church. So he shows up and the lampstands aren't off to the side somewhere and he says, John, worship me. And by the way, we're also going to talk about the churches. No, when John turns around and sees him, he's in the midst of the lampstands. John, you want to see what I'm into? You want to see where my heart's at? You want to see what I'm passionate about? My presence, I'm all over it. I've got the pastors in one hand, and I'm right in the middle of these local churches. That's where I am. You want to see where I am? You want to see what I'm passionate about? That's what I'm passionate about. And this should cause a whole bunch of Christians in our world to sit up and take notice. Because especially in our culture, I'll tell you one of the big things that's, that's that going around right now, and you've all encountered this. I mean, it's, you read it, it's in books, it's at popular conferences, but something you hear more and more, and then I hear so much of, and it, and it just and it sickens me, really, is you hear people saying things like, I'm really into Jesus, but I'm not into organized religion. You ever hear that one? And, and, and people, they, they divide up, okay? They say, 
here's the church. I hate the church, but I love Jesus. And, and they're, they're, they're all in this thing, and they, they think that they're getting close to Jesus. They think they're getting back to the roots of Christianity when they just focus on Jesus and forget about the church. And I'm against organized religion. I'm against the church, but I just love Jesus in his purest form. Well, can you imagine John trying to pull that stunt in Jesus' presence? Turn around, and if you can get the words out before you pass out, whoa, Jesus, I'm so happy to see you. Oh, I can hardly wait to start worshiping you. Can you get rid of the lampstands, please? Let's not talk about the churches. I'm not into the churches. I'm not into the organized religion stuff. I'm just purely into you. And so we divide up the church from Jesus, and we, we say we hate the church, and then we pretend that we still love Jesus. And I say pretend, because how on earth can you actually love Jesus if you hate his bride? One of the big analogies of the church in the New Testament is the church is Jesus' bride. How can you say you love Jesus on the one hand and on the other hand say you hate his bride? That shows that you don't know Jesus because I'm telling you right now, I mean, if you say that you hate my wife, LaDawn, you and I already won't get along, okay? But I'm not that scary or intimidating, okay? Try going to Jesus and telling him, I hate your bride, okay? I mean, you want to know the other, the other analogy of the church in Scripture in, in the New Testament common one is the church is his body, so I love Jesus, but I hate Jesus' body. That's why I say, you know, when people go off in these rants, I hate the church, but I love Jesus, they're only pretending to love Jesus because you can't actually know Jesus and you can't actually love Jesus as he is if you hate the church. Because Jesus' heart is, he loves the church. And when he reveals himself to John and to us, in the scriptures for thousands of years to read here in Revelation 1 and 2, he reveals himself in the midst of the churches with the pastors of the churches in his hand. He loves the church, and he's the one who decided to show up this way. Now, some of you are sitting there right now, and you're going, well, Chris, you just don't understand. You're, you know, you're too young, or you're too naive, and, and you've never seen, you know, the bad things I've seen in churches. And some of you, it's true. It's sad, but it's true. You could tell us horror stories of the things that have happened to you in a church. And, and where people in churches, even pastors in a church, leaders in a church, whatever, have done atrocious things. And it is sad. It's a very sad thing. And I feel sadness for you. And I hear stories of it. We hear stories of it here itself. And people come and they tell us horror stories. And we feel sadness for them that they would feel that in a church. And so people have these bad experiences in a church. And then they think, see, that's why I hate the church. I hate the church. I just love Jesus. But here's the thing. That excuse doesn't wash in Revelation 1 or 2 either. Because, you know, those seven churches, and we're going to see this as we go through the letters, you know those seven churches that Jesus is in the middle of those lampstands? Guess what? They weren't perfect either. In fact, I'm thinking of three of them right now uh, in particular, but there's a few, I mean, almost all of them have, have you know, issues, but three of them in particular have actual wickedness in their churches. And yet, John turns around and some of these churches are, are doing wicked things and Jesus ha is right in the middle of them and he's still holding their pastors in his hand. Okay? And yes, does Jesus have some rebukes for those churches? Yes. Does he have warnings for them? Does he have discipline for them? Yes, yes, yes. It's not that Jesus says that what they're doing is okay. But the fact of the matter is, no church is ever going to be perfect until Jesus comes back. Because none of us is perfect. In fact, we are far from perfect. In fact, the moment you came in this building this morning, you brought more imperfect into this church. Get out. 
You're not perfect. None of us is perfect. You want a perfect church that never hurts anyone? You have a church of zero people. Because no people exist like that yet. You've got to wait till we have the resurrection. Now, sadly, some churches go above and beyond in imperfection. And they thrive on mean-spiritedness and all kinds of things. And that is sad. But Jesus' bride is the church. That's who he's working in and through and to. And when he shows up to John, he's not taking John's excuses. He's saying, John, I don't want to hear about your heart right now. I'm not here to talk about you and your prayer requests. I'm here to talk to you about what I care about. And if you're here today and you actually do love Jesus and you have a relationship with him, at some point, you have to start to go to a level where you begin to care what he cares about. And if you care about Jesus, at some point, if you are actually having a relationship with him, if it's a real relationship and you're walking with him at some point his love for the church is going to start to impact your heart it's going to start to rub off on you because you can't be around jesus for a long time and not begin to feel for what he feels for so he shows up to john and he says this is the core this is this is what i'm passionate about this is what i'm thinking about this is what i want to say well i want to tell you one of the biggest misconceptions being spread around among christians today and that is diverting people's attention from what Jesus is really passionate about. Okay? Because we see here in the scripture what Jesus is passionate about. He says, I want to talk about the church. But a lot of Christians today have this idea, like the core of Christianity, like the thing Jesus is most passionate about is poor people. That's what a lot of people are saying today. Now, some of you are saying, oh, here we go. Organized church guy Chris is going to come, out, come down hard on the poor. Not at all. Clearly in Scripture, we see that Jesus loved the poor. And I'm going to talk about more of that. And a church, as a church, we are supposed to take care of the poor. There's no question. We have to have a passion for helping the poor. But there's this whole movement in Christianity now that says the core, the center of the gospel, the most important thing is if you are a follower of Jesus, you take care of the poor. And the fact of the matter is that is actually false. The Great Commission in Matthew 28, Jesus said, I'm leaving the Great Commission for, to the disciples. What did he want them to do? Did he say, go out into all the nations and take care of their poor? That's not what he said. He said, go out into all the nations and make disciples. That's the church. The Great Commission was not go out into all the world and take care of the poor. The Great Commission was go out into all the world and make disciples. Now, obviously, yes, a big part of making disciples is we take care of the poor and we reach out to the poor and we love the poor. But Jesus, that's not, that's not the main thing. See, the thing you have to realize is Jesus is concerned about a lot more than people's temporal needs. Is that not true? Jesus is concerned about a lot more than just people's temporal needs. If you give someone a piece of bread, but you never talk to them about the bread of life, you have fallen far short of what your, of what your task is in Jesus' eyes. I mean, if you help someone get a job and you do some social justice and you help them get ahead in life and live in a nice place and get some education and all that sort of stuff, that's all wonderful stuff. But if you never help them to get engaged with the King of Kings and they're going to spend their eternity in hell, you have vastly fallen short in what it means to really love someone. See, Jesus cares about way more than just filling someone's stomach in the here and now. Now, it's not an either-or. We don't get trapped into the either-or. We don't say, well, forget about feeding the poor. We're just going to preach Jesus to them. We do both. It's not either or. We do both. But, I mean, if we only care about this world and then we let people go off to hell in the next eternity, Jesus cares about eternity. Okay? And furthermore, there's a second reason why this is so important to understand this, and that is this. Poverty and disease 
and lack of social justice and financial chaos, all these things that are happening in our world today and ignorance and, and all, all these things, these bad things in the world, these are not the root problems that the world has. These are the symptoms of the world's problem. Poverty and disease and death and chaos and war, all of these are symptoms. They're not the problem. People keep trying. They think if we deal with the symptoms, we're going to solve the problem. But that, that is not solving the problem. It's just, it's just the symptom. And, and the real root problem is this, is that the world does not know Jesus and is not submitted to Jesus. Now that sounds breathtakingly naive to anyone who doesn't actually know Jesus. You're telling me, Chris, that there's, the world only actually has one problem? That's exactly what I'm telling you. The world actually has one root problem. It doesn't know Jesus. It is not submitted to Jesus. He's the one who made the entire universe. I'm going to tell you right now, the only problems with the universe are caused by people not being submitted to him. And I'll tell you how I know this. You know, the, time, when, the moment he shows up here on earth, when he's here and when he's king, there's no more social justice issues. There's no more social justice issues. Do you believe that? Do you believe Jesus actually is the answer? I'm not just throwing out here a cliche. He actually is the answer to the world's problems. He's the ultimate answer. So you can spend your whole life, and we've got this whole movement of Christians now that they want to spend all their time and energy and money and passion just on social justice. Well, amen, we have to take care of the poor. But you can spend your whole life trying to fix the symptoms, and you never get anywhere until you start to go down to the root and start to deal with the actual cause of the world's problems, which is not enough people are submitted to Jesus. So I'll tell you, I mean, I'll tell you what the solution is to the world's problems is we need more disciples of Jesus. We need more disciples of Jesus. And the more disciples of Jesus we get, the more people who are filled with his spirit and who know him and love him, the better the world gets. And guess what? There's only one institution. Jesus invented one institution for discipleship making, and that's the church. So if you want to solve the world's problems, okay, you want to change a person's life, I'll tell you how to change a person's life. You want to change a person's life? Connect them to Jesus in the body of Christ. Okay? You say, oh, no, 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 no. Just connect them to Jesus. Notice I did not just say connect them to Jesus. No, no. You want to change a person's life? Connect them to Jesus in the body of Christ. See, it's not enough for someone just to pray a prayer and accept Jesus into their life. That's not the way God has designed it. He's designed us for community. He's designed us for the body. And if we don't have the body, our spiritual roots won't go very deep. You know, they did a, they've done a bunch of surveys on, 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 a, on, on this. And that is, is, you know, over the last hundred years, there's been lots of evangelistic crusades. And literally, you know, hundreds of millions of people have gotten saved in the last century at evangelistic crusades. Uh, I just read Billy Graham crusades alone, uh, 200 million people. Uh, have given their lives to Christ just at Billy Graham Crusades. I mean, that is a 200 million. That is an astonishing number, okay? And amazing. I love Billy Graham, okay? But they did studies where they would go back to these cities where these crusades would happen. They'd go back to the city a year after the crusade to see what was the fruit of all these people getting saved. And you know what they found? Of all the people, of all these millions and millions of people who gave, who gave decisions for Christ at a crusade, if you go back a year later, only 6% of them, only 6% st 
still believe in Jesus, still have a change of belief that Jesus is the only way and, have, and exhibit any change of behavior. The rest of them have 6%, 94% of them have gone back to living exactly how they were before the crusade. Now, I'm not against evangelistic crusades, by the way. Somebody said, oh, he's against evangelistic. No, no, uh, 6% of 200 million is still 12 million people, okay? Amen. I love, you know, God uses, get the gospel out there, however. But the point is, you get someone saved and they're not connected to a church, and it's the parable of the sower that Jesus told in Matthew 13. And some of the seed goes on the path, and the birds scoop it up, and some seed takes root, but it only takes root shallowly, and it springs up, and then it dies. You just throw that seed out there apart from the church, you don't get life change. You get a prayer, you get a decision for Jesus, you get a statistic, but you don't get a life change. You want to change a person's life, you get them connected to Jesus. I mean, that's the key. We don't worship the church. We worship Jesus. You get him connected to Jesus, but you do it in the body of Christ. That's what Jesus has designed for changing people's lives. You want to change, so you want to change a person? Connect, you know, to Jesus in a church. You want to change a community? Plant a spirit-filled, on fire for Jesus church right in the middle of that community and watch what happens. It's happening all over the world. You want to change the world? How do you change the world? You want to change the world? I'll tell you what you do. You walk with Jesus yourself. And then after that, you throw all your heart and your money and your time and your passion behind the one institution Jesus has made to do exactly that, and that is the church. Now, when I talk about the church, I'm not just talking here about some nebulous, okay, Chris, I, I, I got it. You know, I got to get passionate about the, 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 the church, the body of Christ. And some Christians here in North America, we think about the body of Christ as this nebulous, invisible, universal thing you can't see. It's the worldwide body of Christ. I want you to notice in Revelation chapter 1 here that Jesus is not standing in the middle of a nebulous body of Christ. He's standing in the middle of seven lampstands. He's standing in the middle of seven specific local churches. You could go there. They had a pastor. They had people there. They had a place where they gathered. They did all these things. It was an actual local church. Jesus wasn't in the middle of some nebulous, around-the-world, invisible body of Christ. He was in the middle of real. The, the, the universal body of Christ that people talk about, you know, the around-the-world body of Christ, is made up of local churches. That's what it's made up of. So you can't say, I love the, church, the body of Christ around the world if you can't point to a local church somewhere and say, I love that one. You can't say, I'm serving the body of Christ around the world. I'm committed to the, to the bride of Christ around the world unless you can point to a local church somewhere and say, I'm committed in that one. I know some people in that one. I'm accountable in that one. I love that one. I worship in that one with those people. He's not talking about some invisible nebulous thing like that. So you want to change the world? Give yourself to Jesus and with Jesus. Now follow him into the place where he is, and that is right smack dab in the middle of the lampstands. It's the churches. That's Jesus' design. That's Jesus' way. It's hugely important. Well, I want to wrap this up. I want to wrap this up, and this is what I want to wrap it up with, because again, I don't want some people to misunderstand me. Some people will think, yeah, you organize religion, guys. You're not about helping the poor. You just want to lift up the church. Well, again, Jesus didn't show up to John with poor people in his lap. He showed up to John in lampstands. It's Jesus. But that doesn't mean Jesus doesn't care about the poor. Many verses in Scripture, he loves the poor. Totally get that, okay? 
It's not an either or. When I say the, you want to change the world, it's about the church. It's not about helping the poor. It's about the church, but that doesn't mean we don't help the poor. The fact of the matter is, and this is what I want to end this message with, when you pour yourself into the church, when the church is healthy, more poor people get helped at a deeper level of help than when the church is not healthy. In fact, the better the church does, the better poor people do. Because when the church is healthy and filled with the Spirit of Jesus, she can do things for poor people that nobody else in the world can do. And she can do it with a generosity that nobody else in the world can match. So let's just talk about one church family. The only one I really know, and that's this one. One little, I mean, some people don't like to think of us as little. They always think of us as big. But, you know, you put Southland out there in the world in the grand scope of 7 billion people and all the things God's doing around the world, we are not even a drop in the bucket. We're just one teeny, tiny, little microscopic, little nothing in the grand scheme of it. But thank God Jesus loves us. But you just take this little family in this little town of whatever, nothing town of Steinbeck. Who knows about us outside of Manitoba? Okay? Thanks to the Winnipeg Free Press, more Manitobans know about us now, but still outside of the province, it's nothing. <laughs> but you just look. You want to see? Is it, you know, organized religion? I'm not into organized religion. I'm just into helping the poor. You don't think that Jesus can help the poor through the church? He can really help the poor through the church. You think of just what's happened through our little family here over the last couple of years. You think of the country of Uganda and how they're being impacted by just us, this little family. Over the last couple hundred years, you think about the hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of farm equipment and water tanks and food every month. Our church is sending money over to Uganda. 2,000 orphans there in the Back to the Bible Truths Ministries orphanage there that we are helping to feed every single month. That's a lot of food. In addition to all farm equipment, water tanks, printers, educational supplies, medical supplies, on and on and on, hundreds of thousands of dollars over the last couple of years, not to mention the farmers from our church, from our church family here, who have flown over to Uganda on their own time and their own dime. That rhymes. <laughs> but they've gone over there to teach them. They've cleared land. They're starting to farm for themselves. It's, it's one of the first if not the first, if not the only mechanized farm in all of Uganda where people usually have to do it just by hand, you can only get very low yields. And they're going to be farming there like we farm here, except the soil's better and they can do it twice a year. Do you know how many people they're going to feed with those crops? Thousands. They're going to feed all of those orphans and have so much left over, they can sell the food, they can feed the people in their area and pay for the ministry and pay for the farm and become self-sustaining. You want to talk about feeding the poor? You want to talk about social justice? When you help the church, you are helping the poor because when Jesus comes alive in a place, that place will help the poor like the poor have never been helped before. You want to talk about helping the poor? You know Thanksgiving, food and clothing drive again this year? 800 huge uh, hampers of food given away, 1,500 people, you know, walking away with clothes. I'm in my office watching, you know, some of these are, you know, and they're from all over Manitoba. They know about us already. They come here, they line up early on for the Thanksgiving uh, food and clothing drive, and you watch families that don't have very much, and they've hit hard times, or they're immigrant families or whatever. You watch them walk away with garbage bags full of winter clothes and kids' clothes, and it'll be enough to take care, care of them and their families for a whole year. You want to talk about taking care of the poor? It's not either or. You will take care of the poor better through the church because we don't just help the physical needs, we also he help the spiritual. You know, we taught, you saw that car ministry video up there. Absolutely awesome. You see, you know, Travis, Big Snake, and I love that name. Wow, we got to have more names like that. <laughs> okay, you see a whole family get changed. It's not just give away a car. 
We give away cars. I mean, and you should see some of the stories the people we've given away cars to. You know, single moms, and they're walking to work all the time, and in winter, and they go to walk to pick up the groceries and walk to this and walk to that. You give them a car, you're changing their life. Someone in the church donates a car. These guys work on the car. You give away the car, you're changing a life, but with physical needs, but then you also draw them in spiritually, and you saw with Travis there, his family in the church and being changed. They got a car, which drew them in, and now you see it comes full circle. What's he doing at the end? He's serving others. That's a changed life. You talk about helping the poor? That's organized religion. Jesus organized the religion, by the way. People are so against organized religion. Ephesians 4, 10 to 11. He gave these gifts to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. You know what that is? Structure. That's organization. What's in his right hand? The seven stars. Those are the pastors of the churches. That's leadership. You want to talk about who organized religion? Jesus organized it. Now, sometimes organized religion is devoid of the spirit of Jesus, and so rightfully, you know, that is not, there's not life there. But this thing of hating organized religion so I can love Jesus, Jesus organized it. And he's taking care of the poor through us and we could talk about, you know, the food hampers that are being given out every week and we can look at the, the, the Four Winds housing over there in the back and we've got people living there now in community. They have a place to live. They get to live with people. They're getting discipled. Lives are being transformed. You want to help people? You want to change a person's life? You want to change a community? You want to change the world? Jesus said it's going to happen through his bride, through his body, the church. And you want to start walking with Jesus a little closer. You say, I, I just feel stuck in my relationship with Jesus. I, I want to get closer with Jesus. You want to get closer with Jesus? Pray a prayer to him this week and say, Jesus, I want to start talking to you about the things that matter to you, not just to me. And guess what he's going to start to bring up? He's going to start to rub off on you with his, with his burden and with his love for the church. If you really care about people and you love people and you love Jesus, and the church is the best investment you will ever make. So here, I have a weekly challenge for you again, and we're going to worship Jesus. Here's my weekly challenge. First of all, we have an opportunity to put this into practice next week at the offering. Do we actually believe everything that it says in Revelation? Do we believe that Jesus' heart is for the church? Do we believe that Jesus is working through his church to change the world? Next, we can say that we love it. We can say that we're totally on board with him. Next week, we actually get to practice it. I would encourage you this week to pray and ask Jesus. Don't ask me. It's not a guilt trip. Don't give out a guilt. Don't give because you have to. Don't give because, you know, Chris is going to be mad at you if you don't. None of that. I'm not going to be. Okay? You just pray and ask Jesus. Say, Jesus, I want to be close to you. And Jesus, we have a lampstand. Southland has a lampstand, and Jesus is in the midst of that one too. Jesus, what are you doing through Southland? How can I sacrifice for you this week? And see what he wants to say to you. Second, I want to encourage you to pray for our church every day this week. God, make us the church you want us to be. Jesus, make us the church that you dream for Southland to be. And then my third challenge is for those of you who are here today and you're just attenders. You've been attending here, but you've never connected or committed. My challenge to you would be that maybe it's time for you to connect and serve here at Southland. Maybe you want to pray about that. Maybe it's time for me to go beyond just sitting there and taking in a message. The church is so much more than just sitting in a seat and listening. It's a family you engage in. That's what Jesus is passionate about. And if that's the case, I... I hope that you will phone or email the church. You can ask for Ray Order, but you can ask for anyone. If you forget that, don't worry about it. Just phone and ask, okay? Just say, I want to get involved, and, uh, and we'll help you. But Ray Order's the guy, and I hope you, so many of you bug him this week that he can't get any work done, um, and that would be great. But let's pray, and then let's worship Jesus. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, this is about your heart. Last week, you showed us your glory. This week, you showed us your heart. Your heart is for your bride. It's the church. 
That's your plan for the world. That's your plan for this community. That's your plan for our lives is to change us through your body, the church. And I pray, Jesus, that a passion for you would rise up in our hearts. I pray for a miraculous outpouring of generosity in your spirit, the Christmas offering next week, Lord Jesus, that we are going to be able to do missions at a whole new level this year that is going to make this last year look small by comparison. In your name we pray. Amen.